0: Yeah, Good morning,
1: everybody. I think the winds and rains have left us, and hopefully it'll be a lovely weekend that we can look forward to. So welcome to Medical Grand Rounds this morning. Uh, for some of you that may not know, we have a concomitant cardiology conference going on um, at this time, but I hope that as the hour starts, that people will move in. Uh as a courtesy to our speaker, I would ask you to please silence your cell phones or put them on vibrate. For those that are interested in CME credit, the conference code this morning is 6HW7. And it is my pleasure this morning to introduce Dr. Mark Krieger, who will then introduce our speaker for the morning. Dr. Krieger is the Anna Gunlack huber Professor of Medicine and Professor of Surgery at the Geisel School of Medicine, and the director of our Heart and Vascular Center here at Dartmouth-Hitchcock Medical Center. He is the past president of almost every important um, cardiac and vascular uh, foundation. The, he was recent past president of the American Heart Association, the past president of the uh, Society for Vascular Medicine and the Vascular Disease Foundation, and is on the board of directors of the World Heart Federation. He is, as most of you know, an expert in the field of vascular medicine with a specific interest in peripheral artery disease. Please come to the podium and uh, introduce our speaker, Dr. Krieger.
0: Oh, thank you, Dr. Pinto Pal. Good morning, everyone. I'm absolutely delighted to introduce a close friend and colleague of mine, uh, Dr. Jonathan Halpern. Dr. Halpern is the Robert and Harriet. Halpern Professor of Medicine at the iTime School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, and he's the Associate Director of the Cardiovascular Institute, uh, also at Mount Sinai Medical Center. Um, Dr. Halpern has a number of responsibilities there. I'll just mention a few of them. He's Director of the Clinical Track Cardiology Fellowship Training Program and Chair of its committee, of the Institution's Committee on Faculty Appointments, Promotions, and tenure. He received his AB degree from Columbia University and his MD from Boston University. He then completed his medical residency and fellowships in cardiology and peripheral vascular disease at University Hospital in Boston, that's now Boston Medical Center. Dr. Halpern has devoted his career to education and training. He served as chair of the American College of Cardiology and American Heart Association Task Force on Practice Guidelines and co-chair of the American College of Cardiology's Clinical Competence Committee. He also served on the American Board of Internal Medicine's Cardiovascular Disease Examination Committee and currently is the Deputy Editor of the Journal of the American College of Cardiology. That's the flagship journal of the American College of Cardiology. He has published over 200 original research articles. In addition to guidelines, statements, reviews, and several books. He was the principal cardiologist responsible for the design and the execution of the stroke prevention in atrial fibrillation, or SPAF, clinical trials, and directed the trials that evaluated the first oral direct thrombin inhibitor, a uh, factor 10A inhibitor, uh, for this indication. His keynote lecture today is uh, very relevant to that experience, and it's entitled Optimal Antithrombotic Selection in Patients with Cardiovascular Disease. Well, actually, that's his talk at the next symposium. At This one, mm-hmm. it's Stroke <laughs> Prevention in Atrial Fibrillation. Uh, please join me in welcoming Dr. Halvin. Thank you very much, Dr. I'm really honored to have been invited to join
2: you here this morning and um, also, of course, to spend some time with a dear friend who was my mentor. He was my resident when I was an intern and um, taught me far more than I I know. So let me uh, uh, just begin and and, uh, I can do this from here is the one. Um, Okay. So first, let me just acknowledge that I'm completely conflicted. Uh, I was involved in the development of all of the alternatives to warfarin. Uh, for prevention of stroke in patients with atrial fibrillation. Unfortunately for me, I have no financial interest in any of them, but uh, you should keep in mind these relationships uh, and not believe a word I have to say. Um, We can think of atrial fibrillation the way we're taught about it in medical school, which is that thrombus forms as a result of stagnation in the left atrium or actually the left atrial appendage, and through unknown mechanisms, this thrombus, embolizes to the brain and causes a stroke. It only takes a a thrombus the size of a pencil eraser to completely occlude the middle cerebral artery and that's the end of movement and language dehumanizing uh, to its victims and many patients would regard that kind of event as a fate worse than death. Uh, Patients in general much more fearful of stroke than they are of myocardial infarction uh, or other cardiovascular disease complications. And as I said, occasionally we're able to Uh, document uh, the crime as it occurs, thrombus forming in panel A, migrating to the orifice of the appendage by transesophageal echocardiography, these images were acquired, and in panel C, in your upper right, leaving and the next moment the patient has a stroke and the appendage is uh, like an empty gun, um, the scene of the crime uh, having been essentially dissipated. But in fact it's much more complicated than that and so much is not understood. Seen in context, atrial fibrillation begins, but a setting occurs. There are a whole array of promoters. There may be genetic factors that modify the left atrial appendage and the left atrium as a thrombogenic substrate, hemodynamic forces that allow for stasis to allow for thrombus formation, autonomic activity, and a variety of things that set the stage. And then there's an electrical trigger, if you will, that begins the arrhythmia. These may be a consequence of external stimulants, inflammatory processes, and a variety of of other things that distend the the atrium and uh, are in themselves arrhythmogenic. And then over time, an interactive process occurs, whereby the atrium remodels as both a cause and consequence of the arrhythmia and this sets the stage for uh, the formation of a thrombus, uh, things that potentiate include the clinical risk factors and literally the biological changes that occur in the wall of this thin walled structure, the left atrium, at the junction of the venous and the arterial system in some respects in which the entire panoply of cardiovascular risk can easily affect this chamber. Obesity, lipid abnormalities, effects of smoking, hypertension, diabetes, all affect this very thin wall structure relatively early in the course of cardiovascular disease and that allows for thrombus formation. Then, of course, we're all familiar with the sequelae when atrial fibrillation actually occurs, ranging from heart failure, of course, the risk of thromboembolism, and all the things that contribute to the deterioration of quality of life as the population ages, and aging itself further influences the biology of this situation. So a whole interplay of factors that ultimately uh, leads to the formation of a kind of ...cardiomyopathy that's related to fibrosis, Uh, that fibrosis can be identified by some imaging technologies. Unfortunately, being able to access that type of information in clinical practice still must be considered in development and experimental, but all the factors that contribute to the remodeling and the fibrosis of the atrium not only are causal with respect to atrial fibrillation, but they're also causal with respect to thrombogenicity. And yes, it can be imaged. We can see by uh, uh, looking at uh, delayed enhancement, uh, gadolinium-enhanced cardiac magnetic resonance imaging. Protocols are developed in which it's possible to actually see the extent and location of the fibrotic process. Unfortunately, these protocols are really difficult to reproduce, and uh, we have fairly advanced imaging in our place at Mount Sinai, and we can't do it, okay? It's done very nicely in Utah. There are increasing um, Uh, methods, I think, that will become available, but it'll never reach the point in the near term where it's going to become a clinical tool that we can use routinely because of the costs and uh, technical difficulties involved. But even if we can understand what makes an atrium thrombogenic, there's a fundamental problem. If stasis and stagnation of blood is responsible for the formation of thrombus, what is it that gets it to move to go to the brain and cause an embolus? And that's the root issue that we don't understand very well about the pathogenesis. And again, we're beginning to have some tools to help us understand this, to look at the flow characteristics and how they may vary with various factors, but we yet can't put this into clinical use. This is something to watch in the future. That is the issue that underlies the mystery of managing patients with atrial fibrillation. Because it's just not as simple as you think that when the patient's in atrial fibrillation, they're at risk. And when they're not in atrial fibrillation, they're not at risk. That's a myth. We do know that the more atrial has, the greater the risk of thromboembolism. This information comes from patients who have implanted cardiac devices, pacemakers, defibrillators, resynchronization devices, in which atrial electrodes are able to monitor the rhythm continuously. We can download that information. We can interrogate the electrograms. And it's quite clear, people who have a higher burden of atrial fibrillation, more minutes or hours per month spent in atrial fibrillation rather than Rhythm or some other rhythm are at higher risk of thromboembolism. But it's almost as though the presence of atrial fibrillation is adding on top of the underlying substrate. Because what is not true is any relationship between when the patient has atrial fibrillation and when they're prone to a thromboembolic event. Take a look at this example from a trial of about 3,000 patients that we ran with implanted defibrillators and resynchronization devices, all older, sicker people with impaired cardiac function, and each horizontal white line that you see here represents an individual patient who suffered a thromboembolic event, The vertical red line dotted in the middle of the chart represents the day of the thromboembolism, the day of the ischemic stroke. And you're looking for continuous monitoring for close to five years before and five years after that event occurred. And we know every minute what these patients were doing in terms of atrial rhythm. And on each vertical, little tiny yellow line represents a day, and the height of the yellow line is the amount of atrial fibrillation, the burden of atrial fibrillation on that date. And what you'll see is, look at the very top line, patient goes along for years with nothing, then starts to have some of that atrial fibrillation, and sometime shortly after that, the patient develops a stroke, they go for a while without atrial fibrillation, they have some again maybe close to a year later, and then nothing, we don't know what the doctor... Did to get rid of the arrhythmia, um, but that's what happened. The second line down, lots of AFib for years and years, and then finally an increase in the frequency and duration, and then then a stroke. But go down to the bottom of the chart, and you'll see a number of patients in whom nothing happened for years for sure, and then there was a stroke, and only later did the patient develop atrial fibrillation. So every study that I've, I've mentioned, that has looked at this has found that there's no temporal relationship between the rhythm and the clinical event. About at least a third of the patients who have a thromboembolic event, the atrial tachyarrhythmia, atrial fibrillation, or atrial flutter, was detected more than a month before the event. And about another 20 or 15 percent, there's a detection within a month. Only a minority of patients in the third group of, of uh, columns here actually have a fib at the time of the event. And Only 15 or 20% in all of these trials never had atrial fibrillation detected with the implanted device until after the stroke. So, the stroke mechanism is uncertain. We don't know everything, but clearly you cannot expect that a strategy for ill patients with atrial fibrillation, older, sicker patients with impaired cardiac function, that just putting anticoagulant when they're in atrial fibrillation is not likely to be an effective strategy to have a broader view of this disease. And that's one of the reasons why the dilemma occurs about who to select for anticoagulation or alternative strategies needs to take a long view and not just target the arrhythmia. No study that has looked at treating the arrhythmia itself with antiarrhythmic drugs or ablation procedures has shown a significant reduction in the incidence of ischemic stroke. Now, again, kind of a holy grail if we could get there, but no study has yet done that. It's been looked at at least 10 times in large trials. So that's why we're stuck as clinicians saying, who are we going to anticoagulate, because the presence or absence of the arrhythmia is not sufficient. You're all familiar with the Chad score and the CHADS-2-VASC score that has been widely adopted uh, in guidelines around the world. As patients with enough of these risk factors, the ones that should be anticoagulated, Those without risk factors are at low enough risk that they don't stand to gain much from being exposed to the risk of bleeding that's entailed by anticoagulant therapy. And the guidelines, these are the European guidelines and the American guidelines from the American Heart Association, American College of Cardiology and Heart Rhythm Society. In this country, the recommendation is no risk factors do not use an antithrombotic agent. There's no recommendation to use aspirin. Aspirin has minimal, if any, efficacy in patient atrial fibrillation and does expose patients to the risk of bleeding. Patients who have only one moderate risk factor, like a CHADS-VASc score of one, in the U.S., no antithrombotic therapy is recommended. In Europe, they say we should consider anticoagulating them, and the, sh- the shift comes because of the availability of these newer anticoagulants that have a better uh, risk-benefit ratio. Patients who have two or more risk factors, there's uniformity that not only should we anticoagulate the patient, but one of the target-specific agents that we'll talk about is preferred uh, because of the relative safety in, in proportion to efficacy, unless the patient has certain exclusions, particularly in mechanical heart valve prosthesis, where the only game in town is warfarin okay and and i think it's important to keep in mind that these are not rules these are things for us to consider as clinicians and to balance with patients' own values and preferences in trying to make decisions for them. Many patients are terrified of stroke and are willing to take the risk of bleeding to reduce that risk to a negligible level that's no different from the risk in patients who don't have atrial fibrillation, statistically speaking. And others who are terrified because you know, Aunt Millie had a terrible experience with warfarin and uh, they'll do anything to avoid an anticoagulant. Now, those considerations are important as well. Also, it's important to recognize that the CHADS-VASC score leaves about a third of the patient's intrinsic risk unaccounted for. It only has a C-statistic of about .66, literally meaning it can account for about two-thirds of the risk, but it doesn't account for everything. And we can improve that, if we want to, by looking at other things. Biomarkers, for example. Uh, We can use, for example, the NT-ProBNP. The higher the level in a patient with atrial fibrillation, the greater the risk of thromboembolism. The same is even true if you look at high-sensitivity troponin levels. And people have attempted to put these things into risk scores. Here's an example, the ABC score, but now it's not so simple as adding up a couple of things in your head. Now you need a, I would say a slide rule or a calculator uh, to do the, the uh, make the decision or help guide you. And so this hasn't really caught on clinically, not to mention the need for additional testing. But even more complicated than intrinsic risk of thromboembolism is factoring in the patient's risk of bleeding. And if you look at this most widely used score, which is the has-bled score, you'll notice that they're very much the same risk factors as predict the patient's risk of stroke. So in other words, being older, being hypertensive, having had a previous stroke, um, are all contributing both to the risk of ischemic events as much as to the risk of bleeding. And frankly, the risk of bleeding isn't really the question anyway, because most bleeding events are things that people get over. Whereas if you've had an ischemic cardioembolic stroke related to atrial fibrillation, it's a disaster. Okay? And so the only complication of anticoagulant therapy that's worse than the ischemic stroke you're trying to prevent is an intracranial hemorrhage. If you bleed in your brain on an anticoagulant, that's a catastrophe, typically at least a 50% mortality rate, and the functional outcomes are terrible. And so what we need is not a risk score for bleeding in the gastrointestinal tract or the urinary tract or someplace else, but rather risk factors for intracerebral hemorrhage. And unfortunately, many of them aren't modifiable and many of them are hard to identify. Identifying, for example, amyloid angiopathy requires high-resolution brain imaging that suddenly adds enormously to the burden of evaluation and identifying leukoaraiosis or other abnormalities of brain structure that affect the elderly increase the risk of brain hemorrhage, but can we really start doing high-resolution MRIs on every one of the some three or four million people in the United States, not to mention the tens of millions worldwide who have this common arrhythmia, the incidence of which is rising rapidly. And so that's really where the so-called NOACs or novel or uh, non-warfarin oral anticoagulants come from. And let me actually just address that for a minute. What are we going to call them? Okay? When they were new, which was more than a decade ago, uh, we called them novel oral anticoagulants. But they're not so novel anymore. Okay? The first one will be going off patent in the next few years. There are already generics available in other countries patients can access. Over the internet, so we decided, well, we we'll make NOACs mean non-warfarin oral anticoagulants, so we can continue to use the acronym. In Europe, they like DOACs for direct oral anticoagulants, but that sounds dumb. And then you've got SOACs for target-specific oral anticoagulants, but that smacks of tsaristic Russia, so that's not on either. So I don't know. Call them what you want. I'll probably refer to them as NOACs just out of habit. Okay. And before we get into much in the way of details, let me just point out. What a challenge it was to develop these drugs, okay? I want to show you what you're looking here is the trials that put warfarin on the formulary for preventing stroke and atrial fibrillation and made it the so-called standard of care, okay? bunch of trials, and if you're looking here at the risk reductions, there was a Copenhagen AFISAC trial, 1,007 patients single-handedly... Um, evaluated, echoed, and randomized, and managed by a single then neurology fellow. That guy got loose in the U.S., those of us dependent on federal funding from the NIH were screened, so fortunately he stayed over there. Um, But this was the first trial. Then the one that we talked about, the SPAF trial that we did here in the U.S., um, uh, again, a Boston area trial, uh, ran the longest of all the studies, but it was small in terms of the number of patients. A Canadian study stopped, that's why the confidence bounds extend over, into the negative range when the first three trials said it's not ethical to give a placebo. okay, You have to stop. They stopped the trial relatively early. It didn't, for some reason, stop the Veterans Administration. They continued on. And in Europe, they did a a trial uh, looking at a little bit different design with a lot of people with prior stroke, but the aggregate risk reduction, 68% according to intention to treat, and if a patient is actually taking warfarin at a therapeutic INR, it is a rare event indeed to see an ischemic stroke. The problem, of course, is actually achieving that more than half the time is something most patients and practices can't do. But there's a piece of information here that's not so apparent from this slide. And that is that every one of these trials was either unblinded or terminated early, except for the VA trial, which included no women. So if you brought warfarin today as a new compound, one of the most effective treatments known to man for any disease, and you brought it to the FDA for approval, no way it's going to get approved. It hasn't been tested in women, Okay, um, and all these were unblinded studies except that one. Okay. So the challenge then of delivering on the new agents when there's a well-established therapy was daunting. And we're not gonna go into a lot of detail here. I just wanna remind you that there are actually four alternatives to warfarin for stroke prevention in atrial fibrillation, and a fifth one called batrixaban, which is not labeled for that indication. It's approved in the U.S. for preventing venous thromboembolism in people who have uh, just been discharged from the hospital after medical illness. So we really only have... The remaining ones, which are dabigatran, a direct thrombin inhibitor, and three oral factor 10A inhibitors, rivaroxaban, apixaban, and edoxaban. Edoxaban is not marketed widely in the United States, but it's very popular in Asia. The company that makes it is a Japanese company, so it's very widely used there. It's a once a day Um, a drug with a very nice safety profile. It's available, but it's tricky to get it covered under insurance plans. So most of the game is between, if you will, Pradaxa, the brand name for dabigatran, Xarelto, the branded form of rivaroxaban, or Eliquis, the branded form of apixaban compared to warfarin. You'll see an array of doses are available. I just want to point out one thing about the pharmacology, and that is that the kinetics, the time to the onset of action, is within a few hours after the ingestion of the first dose. The patient is therapeutically anticoagulated. The half-lives vary a great deal, but they bear absolutely no uh, relationship to the dosing interval. In other words, these drugs are either administered once a day or twice a day based simply on the trial design and very limited background information. And you wonder whether those given twice a day could be given once a day and vice versa, but we don't have data to support anything other than what has been tested in the trials. They do vary in other ways, importantly with respect to their renal excretion versus hepatic metabolism. Um, But either way, I think it's important to recognize as physicians that we have choices. I personally prescribe all of them and try to make a career out of picking one that's best for the patient. But between you and me, it's mostly based on my personal psychosis and can't be evidence-based because there aren't comparative trials. It's all indirect comparisons. These studies were different. One was open label; the others were double-blind, the dosing was different, the patients were different in terms of intrinsic risk, the definitions of bleeding were different. So making comparisons is a very tricky business, okay? Um, Very very briefly, I'll just point out, these were the pivotal trials. I hope you've heard of them. The RELY trial of Dabigatran, the ROCKET trial of Rivaroxaban, Aristotle for Apixaban, and Engage AF for Edoxaban. You can see that there were uh, different approaches, for example, to whether you adjusted the dose or held the dose fixed. The dabigatran trial was open label, you either got a high dose of dabigatran, 150 milligrams twice a day, or a lower dose, 110 milligrams twice a day, or warfarin, and 110 milligrams was not approved in the U.S. for AFib, but it's the most widely used dose every place else in the world. It has been approved in the U.S. for preventing venous thromboembolism in patients undergoing major orthopedic surgery. And the dose was held constant throughout the study. The rivaroxaban trial, initially the patient, either got a standard dose of 20 milligrams or reduced to 15 milligrams if the patient had moderate renal impairment and the dose was then held constant. In the Aristotle trial of Apixaban, five milligrams twice daily was the standard dose, and a very small proportion of patients had the dose reduced by half if they were older than 80 or had impaired renal function or weighed less than 60 kilograms, and again, the dose was held constant. And then finally, the Doxaban trial, the dose went up and down if patients changed in terms of the various indications to reduce from 60 milligrams once a day to 30 milligrams once a day. There was even a lower dose range that was not approved because of a lack of efficacy. I wanna just point out the number of patients in each dose of each trial, and I only wanna draw your attention to one thing. The most widely used one in the United States today is Apixaban, that's Eliquis, and if you look at the third set of columns and you look at the number of patients who received the lower dose, fewer than 500 patients. No statistically significant ability to make a judgment about safety or efficacy, and it's over 20% of the U.S. market for that drug. Okay? Doctors gravitate toward low doses because there's this notion that if the patient has a bleed, it's our fault. If they have a stroke, it's an act of God. I did something by whipping out my prescription pad is not a sufficient strategy. Just be thoughtful about the patient's actual risk, actual renal function, actual risk of bleeding, and try to make the right decision for that patient. I'll summarize the results very quickly. The primary outcome in all these studies was all stroke, ischemic and hemorrhagic stroke together. So if you reduced either one or both, you win. And you only had to be non-inferior. That's not a psychiatric concept. It just means at least as good as, not necessarily better than, warfarin. And warfarin, of course, managed very well in these trials compared to how we do as clinicians. I also want to point out that because that combined two kinds of stroke thing, only one dose of only one NOAC was actually superior to warfarin for preventing ischemic stroke, and that's the high dose of dabigatran. The low dose was not, apixaban was not, so the claims that drugs are they're more effective and safer, is more effective with respect to the primary outcome, not the disease you're trying to prevent, which is ischemic stroke. Also point out that with respect to major bleeding, all of the drugs were the same or safer than warfarin. But when the big win was with respect to that worst complication, intracranial hemorrhage, where they were all statistically superior to warfarin by a mile. And that's the main selling point that should gravitate you toward picking a NOAC. I don't care which one you use, okay? but they're all better in terms of preventing the worst thing that can happen as a consequence of therapy. So just to quickly summarize without getting into the details of the trials, they are all non-inferior to warfarin for preventing the full spectrum of stroke and systemic embolism. They all reduce the risk of intracerebral hemorrhage. The major bleeding outcomes are generally better than with warfarin, even though there are no antidotes or reversal strategies available during any of these trials. And the reduction in mortality is about 11% for all of them, and it's mostly because you're preventing fatal bleeding, brain hemorrhage, cardiovascular death. And the differences in the outcomes in these trials, like statins, pick one. okay? Um, They're all about the same in terms of their efficacy safety profile, except for some nuances that are probably related to differences in study design, risk of the population, other treatments, rather than the drugs themselves. Of course, trials don't answer everything we want to know. There's a host of unanswered questions. And when we don't have comparative studies, what we do is we get experts in the room, and we start making decisions the old-fashioned way, which is not the right way. I call it gobsat, good old boys sat at table. That's not the way to make clinical recommendations for physicians. So what's a body to do? Well, I don't know. everybody loves this slide, I urge you don't take this too seriously. Take it with a grain of salt. This is an example of my personal psychosis. How do you pick the drug? Well, if a patient has a high risk of bleeding, pick one with a lower risk of bleeding. It'll probably lead you to a lower dose of dabigatran or a doxaban or a pixaban. If a patient has, for example, renal impairment, well, don't choose the one that's the most dependent on the kidney which means knocks the bigotran out of the box. That's not the one to use. If the patient has hepatic impairment, however, most of the others are too dependent on the liver, like warfarin is, probably ought to gravitate toward the bigotran and vice versa. You can go back and forth on this thing. The idea is if you look at the trials, you can try to draw some inferences. These are not tested hypotheses. And then, of course, there's all the other things that we encounter clinically. What do we do with a patient who has valvular disease? What do we do with a patient who also has coronary disease, or has a stent, or an acute coronary syndrome? What do we do with a patient undergoing cardioversion, or having an ablation, or a host of other things that were not specifically addressed in the trials, First, let me talk about this valvular business. You know, we use the term non-valvular atrial fibrillation. And I must admit that I'm probably responsible. I was a young idiot at the time that we designed the STAFF trial. I knew you couldn't give placebo to people who had mitral stenosis and atrial fibrillation. They had to get a real medicine. So we said, we'd well, better not take those people and put them into a placebo-controlled trial. We need to get something. Uh, And similarly, we knew that mechanical heart valves were a bad thing. I I figured a bioprosthetic valve, probably the same thing, better not give those people placebo. I didn't even know you could do valve repair, so that never entered into the definition. And so, you know, that's the problem with that. And we have abandoned that term. The European guidelines in particular have said don't use the term non-valvular. All it really means is don't give it to people with severe mitral stenosis, because it hasn't been tested, and don't give uh, it to people with mechanical heart valves, because the only thing for them is warfarin, and that was confirmed in the Realign trial, when high-intensity dabigatran was compared to warfarin in people who had already had mechanical heart valves, either aortic and mitral valve prostheses. It was a disaster, even though uh, you would make... Live, Looked terrific in an animal model. They were clotting, bleeding like crazy. We got off on that, that, and no one's going back to that well anytime soon. You can't expect to see any of the NOACs looked at. We're going to have to rebuild warfarin in some way and hit multiple targets. But biological heart valves is different. Bioprosthetic valves, in the ENGAGE trial, we were overpowered. We had more patients than we needed, so we let them in. You could get... Uh, we knew that if the FDA didn't like it, we could, we could drop that segment. And in fact, they had lower rates of stroke and systemic embolism in a few, not that many patients, of only about 200, but it looked pretty good for edoxaban, a 10A inhibitor, compared to warfarin. And on the bleeding side, the same thing, it looked pretty good. Now, it's not a, a robust evidence base, but it's enough that we can say biological valves are not an exclusion from the NOACs, but you shouldn't give anybody a NOAC too early after cardiac surgery. What does too early mean? I don't know. Currently, the, the consensus statements say three months, but that interval might narrow over time. Okay. What about the issue of a cardioversion? Now, three trials have looked at this, and overall, about 5,000 patients. And compared to vitamin K antagonists, these newer drugs or have similar rates of thromboembolism and bleeding, Um, and you can cardiovert more quickly because you know that you start the drug and the patient is anticoagulated that day. On average, it takes nine weeks for a patient starting warfarin to have three consecutive weeks with a therapeutic INR or an INR above two, Uh, but be very careful because we don't have blood tests that tell us that the patient has been even taking their drug. My first experience with this was a patient that I'll, I'll even violate, Mrs. Rodriguez, okay? Yeah, go, find, go find her in New York. Um, <laughs> so Mrs. Rodriguez, I said, you know, we're going to cardiovert you. Here's your, at that time, the only one we had was Pradaxa. Here's your pill. I want you to take this twice a day. I want you to take it every day, and I want you to bring this bottle with you on the day of your procedure, which will be four weeks from now. Okay? And she came in that day, met with her. And I said, Mrs. Rodriguez, how you doing? Good. Did you take that pill? Yes, I did. Did you take it twice a day? Yes, I did. Did you bring that bottle with you? Yes, I did, doctor. And she whipped out the bottle of metoprolol. So please be careful, because you don't know what they're doing out there, Okay. there are still unanswered questions. What about patients who need to be urgently cardioverted? Can you start it right like that? Patient brief uh, atrial fibrillation or newly detected? What about the patient who actually has a thrombus in the left atrial appendage? Can you use a NOAC there? Well, we think you can. There's very little data. From the EMINATE trial, we allowed people who had screening TEEs when they presented with atrial fibrillation and they showed a thrombus. We allowed them to be randomized and stay on their assigned therapy. And what we found was that about a 50% risk reduction. In other words, the patient who had a thrombus, a month later, half those thrombi were gone, and it was the same with warfarin and apixaban. So what we know is they're probably comparable, but it's not a robust base, okay? Now, what about the problem of when a patient has something that also needs a platelet inhibitor, like aspirin, like coronary disease? It gets tricky. I'm not going to go into great detail, but the concept is that we tend to use platelet inhibitors for arterial disease. We use anticoagulants for things like atrial fibrillation. People have to be in a pretty high-risk state, like an acute myocardial infarction, acute coronary syndrome, recent stent, in order to justify putting both, because the problem is when you combine the risk of bleeding goes up, and if you add a second platelet inhibitor, like dual antiplatelet therapy, and you add it to an anticoagulant, the risk of bleeding goes up. Now I'm not going to review the trials, but there have been four now major trials of patients with percutaneous coronary intervention and atrial fibrillation, One was the pioneer AFPCI trial in which lower doses of rivaroxaban were combined with various platelet inhibitor regimen and compared with so-called triple therapy, warfarin, aspirin, clopidogrel, warfarin, aspirin, and another P2Y12 inhibitor and went along for various duration. And then after the period of dual antiplatelet therapy would be needed, the patient would switch to just the anticoagulant plus aspirin. Um, Redual trial, very similar, using different doses of dabigatran compared to triple therapy. Uh, the Augustus trial of Edoxaban, giving warfarin plus a theanopyridine or P2Y12 inhibitor with and without aspirin, a forearm trial versus a Pixaban and the other antiplatelet agent with or without aspirin. And finally, just presented last month, the Entrust AF study, Edoxaban versus the conventional strategy. In aggregate, They were all powered only for bleeding, and they all showed that if you got rid of the triple therapy, bleeding was reduced. And by getting rid of the triple therapy, we mean dropping aspirin, continuing the anticoagulant with the other platelet inhibitor. They all showed a reduction in bleeding, and none of them were powered to show anything about efficacy. So we're stuck with about nine choices and no way to know which is really best. There's a consensus document that says, well. You should take the patient, and in general, you should use the dual antiplatelet therapy only around the time that the patient gets the stent. They're getting an anticoagulant as well. And as soon as you can, drop the aspirin. Continue the anticoagulant with the, say, clopidogrel, ticagrel, or whichever one you're using, until the antiplatelet is no longer needed, and that means no more than 12 months. Maybe less for certain low-risk patients, but very unlikely that you're going to extend it beyond 12 months. The guidelines are 12 months for, uh, for dual antiplatelet therapy across all the indications in the ACC AHA guidelines. And after that, anticoagulant alone, people with coronary disease don't have to also take aspirin when they're in the stable phase. The anticoagulant is good for coronary disease. So after PCI in patients with atrial fibrillation, you need the anticoagulant to prevent a stroke. And in the near term, initially, you need an antiplatelet agent to prevent stent thrombosis But get rid of it within 12 months of the PCI. The dual antiplatelet regimen, exactly what's the best one, has not been well defined. And a NOAC plus a single antiplatelet agent looks better than so-called triple therapy with warfarin and two antiplatelets. We had just last month in the New England Journal the AFIRE trial that looked in patients with stable coronary disease, randomized to a slightly reduced dose of rivaroxaban, Plus aspirin versus rivaroxaban alone, and the single anticoagulant works for both efficacy and for safety better than keeping the aspirin going, if you will. Now, one of the things that's important about these uh, NOACs is the fear that patients had that there was no antidote. Well, I should first begin by saying the companies that make the antidote are the same companies that make the anticoagulants. So the first thing they're gonna do is get rid of the term antidote, because antidote's for poisons, okay? So you gonna use this reversal strategy. Reversal agent, it's a nicety, okay? And so if you do that and you refer to it that way, the companies are all comfortable and they can think it can help. Before we had them, it was chaos. Uh, you could give a so called prothrombin complex concentrate, PCC, that you would give if somebody came into the emergency room with a catastrophic hemorrhage on warfarin. Um, and uh, it seems to work for the factor 10A inhibitors, not really so much for the dabigatran. So that was a problem. We also have a factor 8 inhibitory binding uh, antigen. We have a recombinant factor 7A. They're all strategies, but they're all nonspecific. They don't target the anticoagulant. In normal subjects, as I said, a little bit better uh, to uh, use uh, PCC against uh, the 10A inhibitor, particularly studied with rivaroxaban. But the problem is that high doses are thrombo-generators and they're thrombogenic. So now you have a patient at risk of a thromboembolic event, you're given something that's thrombogenic even you're getting rid of the anticoagulant. Well, we've moved along and things are better today. For dabigatran, we have a reversal agent called idarucizumab. For rivaroxaban and apixaban, we have now approved uh, andexanet alpha uh, approved by the FDA last year, and that should work for edoxaban, but the trial is not yet completed. Okay, and they're, they're indicated to reverse anticoagulation in patients with uncontrolled major bleeding or prior to urgent surgery and invasive procedures. But the indications differ; they're not all approved for both. So he, these were the main trials: the reverse AD trial of idarucizumab. I'll tell you about that in just a minute, and and dexinit, the trial for reversal of, of the anexa trial for reversal of the rivaroxaban or apixaban. And you can see the only one that idarucizumab only reverses dabigatran and dexinib only reverses 10A inhibitors, but 10A inhibitors include things like heparin and low molecular weight heparin and fondaparinux. They're all 10A inhibitors, and that could be a problem if a patient comes in with, say, a cardiovascular emergency and needs to go to the OR. They like to use heparin in the OR. Well, and alpha will reverse or block the anticoagulant effect of heparins. So that might be a problem. That's not the case with adaracizumab. Okay? And of course, adarocizumab was tested for both emergency procedures and life-threatening bleeding, but only life-threatening bleeding was looked at in the reversal agent for the uh, 10A inhibitors. Uh, very quickly, adarocizumab, I have to tell you, I, I, I don't, this is a perfect antidote. Okay? I think the antidote's better than the frickin' drug. Okay? <laughs> it, it, it really is everything you could want. Okay, it, it, it can, it be, Basically what you do is you give two ampules of 2.5 grams, inject it as fast as you can, and the bigotran is gone in five minutes. It's a specific FAB antibody fragment against that particular molecule. And the reversal agent is gone tomorrow. And you can get the bigotran again. Okay? It's exactly what you want. There's been no prothrombotic effects, no hypersensitivity reactions. If somebody has taken a dabigatran overdose, there are a few cases in which you did need to re-dose it, but there are a handful, okay? And the beauty of it is it only blocks dabigatran, so if the patient has to go have their ruptured abdominal aortic aneurysm fixed, they can be heparinized in the OR, okay? And you can, as they say, it it has very similar kinetics to dabigatran in terms of renal clearance. That's not quite so clean when it comes to the reversal strategy for the factor 10A inhibitors. Um, it, it can work quickly to reverse, presumably, any of them. It's a basically a fake factor 10A that acts like a decoy. It sucks up the anticoagulant and prevents it from really working. Okay? So it's a different strategy. It's not an antibody, it's a, it's a uh, dud of a receptor, if you will. And uh, here you have to reconstitute it after a bolus, it has to be infused over about a couple of hours, then it wears off after another hour, and you have to redose dose it. Um, and if you look at this, you'll see in the package label, the dosing is different for rivaroxaban versus apixaban, uh, whether they're getting a high dose or a low dose, it's complicated. It's not just two shots and you're done. And it's not as widely available, they had a manufacturing issue that delayed approval, but it will get there. Whereas Idaracizumab is in something like 7,000 emergency departments in the United States, hardly ever used, by the way. you throw it out in two years and have to do it. Idaracizumab is about, about three or $4,000 a dose, meaning for two ampules. It's about $27,000 a dose for Andexin and Alpha at the moment. Okay, and uh, I, I think it's um, something that's a bit of a problem, so we have more work to do. Okay, there is on the horizon some, uh, some interesting alternatives, one called seroparentag, which has now been fast-tracked by the FDA, which is touted as an antidote for any anticoagulant except warfarin. For warfarin, we're going to have to still use PCC, vitamin K, fresh frozen plasma. This is still in phase two. Uh, it's going to take a while before we really know if it works or not. So that's essentially where we stand. And was approved back in 2000, uh, I think fifteen or something. It's widely available now. 2018, they had the approval of uh, at Alpha. I believe that's pretty widely distributed, not quite um, uh, as widely as daracizumab yet, but it's quickly coming. There's an app for that. You can look up where's the nearest ED that has it and all that kind of stuff. Um, stay tuned, okay? So let me just say that if you consider that warfarin is... If it's given properly and managed properly, it's a highly effective drug, unusual for people to have an a, a, a ischemic event. It means that these NOACs, which are at least as effective and so much easier to use, are about the most effective medicines known to man for any disease. It's a remarkably effective product, any of them. And the best evidence for their use is that they avoid, the, to a large extent, the risk of brain hemorrhage, and that's the main driver of the net clinical benefit. But be careful. Be careful because people can have changing liver and renal function, and you should monitor that a couple times a year, make sure that something's going on that's not going to lead to drug accumulation. We don't have any approved assays to test the degree of anticoagulation. None of them were adjusted uh, based on blood levels or anticoagulant effect during the trials. There were some 70,000 patients in those trials, Uh, About 40,000 of them got the new drugs, so it's a big robust evidence base, but they didn't measure anything, okay? Be careful about off-label indications. The FDA has about to, because the European Medicine Agency already has, put a black box warning not to use these in people with anticardiolipin syndromes, antiphospholipid syndromes, are a fair number of negative reports of rivaroxaban and apixaban in those situations. So be sure you stay on-label. Uh, be careful of somebody who's just had major surgery, cardiac or non-cardiac. But we're starting these things because they certainly act quickly. It's not like warfarin. It takes a better part of a week uh, to do very much. Okay? And be particularly careful about concomitant antiplatelet therapy, which should be a short-term thing for people in the setting of acute coronary syndromes or percutaneous intervention. And it's nice to have these reversal agents, but I don't think we're going to use them very often. We certainly haven't used them more than a handful of times at the major medical centers in New York. Where are we going with this? We're going to continue to see oral anticoagulants evolve. There are a factor 11a and factor 9a inhibitory trials already underway. Uh, those are going to keep moving. Uh, We're tissue factor inhibitors. You know, it's it, potentially um, important issues there, but there's some concerns about the risk of brain hemorrhage. It's probably an insult to mankind, but, you know, our brains are basically fat and tissue factors. Okay, and so we have to see whether those will actually have a benefit in terms of safety. There are a variety of combinations and we may need combinations to be able to attack the problem of mechanical heart valves, but as with most things in the development and evolution of medical science, the cure usually comes just around the time the disease disappeared as happened with isoniazid. and. Uh, INH therapy of tuberculosis, the incidence of the disease started to go down right before the drug became available, and I suspect we're going to see fewer and fewer patients getting mechanical heart valves just as we have an alternative to warfarin for them, although it would be nice to have it. Cost and value considerations are very complex, particularly now. Uh, because these drugs remain expensive. There are no currently approved generics in the U.S. The first ones are expected in 2014. In other countries where there are more liberal policies, generic forms of uh, rivaroxaban and dabigatran are already available. We don't have safety and efficacy data yet. Um, And, you know, the FDA's standards around equivalence is very loose when it comes to generics. So uh, we have to be careful, but we just need to wait for the data. How to use the right drug for the right patient in the right dose is a challenge given the lack of robust evidence guiding that. Very important that we start to understand the actual mechanistic links between thromboembolism, thrombogenesis, aging, and those comorbidities. And of course, it would be nice to be able to get in the game early with a safe strategy, so maybe we can identify people who will become atrial fibrillators and find a low-intensity therapy that can keep them safe because too many people have their AFib discovered at the time of a stroke. I should also mention, and we have experts in the room that can tell you far more than I can, alternatives to anticoagulation such as left atrial appendage occlusion devices, I will just say that it remains an area that seems very promising, but there's a lot of gaps in the evidence that we have to fill out. For example, because in the trials, there were a fair number of procedure-related strokes, it's kind of like you take your risk up front, as one does with so many invasive procedures, and if you get through it, then it looks good. But when you're talking with a patient, you cannot really say, this will prevent a stroke. And what we really need, and fortunately what we're getting started with, is to compare left atrial appendage occlusion against a NOAC rather than against warfarin, which is where all the trials have gone so far. Anything that gets a patient off warfarin will prevent brain hemorrhage, relatively speaking. Okay? The question is, can you beat a drug that already reduces brain hemorrhage? It's an important question. The available evidence says that in selected patients, at least with the only approved device, which is the Watchman device, there's other devices coming up the pipe pretty quickly. Um, they're, they're, they may be non-inferior to long, long-term warfarin, but not compared to the nox. The mortality benefit, though, is mostly because you avoid the bleeding complications. Uh, The data on the differences uh, and the effectiveness of these different devices are very scant, and particularly uh, people who are reasonable candidates for uh, long-term anticoagulation. So the label, for example, for the warfarin uh, by the FDA is kind of unwieldy. It says the patient can take warfarin, but it's not a good idea, okay? So how do you work with that as a clinician, okay? And then although we can do it during heart surgery, and we do increasingly, uh, you know, we don't have clear-cut evidence of benefit, Because some things can go wrong with the various methods we have. So let me just say that the transition in this paradigm of managing atrial fibrillation has really evolved over the past 14 or 15 years since these drugs uh, were first conceived. We know that atrial fibrillation is associated with an array of clinical conditions, but the mechanistic links have to be better understood so we can target therapy uh, more effectively and precisely. We know that there will be increasing use of the NOACs because as the generics start to get on the horizon, the prices will drop. Uh, But the optimal deployment really needs the comparative studies that we can never do until generics become available because these companies will never bid against themselves. The individual NOACs more, have more in common than they are different, and frankly, you shouldn't get too focused on choosing the right one, you should really focus on making sure that you find patients with risk factors who have AFib and get them on an anticoagulant, because too many of them are getting aspirin or nothing, and that's just not the way to go um, these days. And so, too many people receive no antithrombotic therapy at all, that's a huge opportunity to prevent thousands of strokes. Thank you very much for your attention. It's really been a pleasure to be with you today. Thank you, John. That was
0: uh, outstanding. We have time for questions.
3: Yeah. Okay. Dr. Halperin, uh, I just want to say on behalf of our patients and for us, thank you for the hard work you've done to bring acts to us. Thank you. It's clear it's been a lifelong passion of yours. Thank you. You open with uh, disclosure, so I'm a watchman and planner as a disclosure. But here at Dartmouth, we're really focused on this concept of values and preferences guiding decisions. And what I heard in your talk were some embedded values, uh, mm-hmm. that uh, such as the only bleeding that's really important is intracerebral hemorrhage.
2: Though yeah. I want to make sure the only one that's I think worse than an ischemic stroke.
3: Okay. Worse than an ischemic stroke. Okay. And I think all of us, including you, who take care of patients like this, hear from them about how traumatizing, even sometimes nuisance bleeding like nosebleeds Mm -hmm. and social events are to them. And I think some of our trials are really powered for outcomes that we value as most important and are not necessarily powered for outcomes (laughs) that are most important to patients. And in the device world, we're working with FDA to embed patient preferences in the selection of trial outcomes. But I don't know about that in the, in the drug world when you're powering trials. Is that something that So it,
2: the answer is yes. And, and I, first let me applaud the work that you're doing because it is indeed the right way to guide the kinds of decisions that patients need to face when considering device-based therapies. And they do need to face it, but we don't have quite the way, the tools that we need. This goes back when we did SPAF. We tried very hard to get at patients' values and preferences, you know, numbers of happy faces and frowning faces and tools and things uh, to help patients first understand the concept of relative risk. In other words, that not, you know, not everybody who doesn't take the drug gets the stroke. Not everybody who does take the drug gets the bleed. And how do you put numbers around that that patients can fathom? But, but as you pointed out, it's more than just do you have a major hemorrhage. The problem with minor bleeding that we blow off, bruising and so on, is that it keeps people off treatment. They see it, they start to get worried. It happens even with aspirin, coronary disease. And they look and they look at their face or their arms or whatever's you know, black and blue. And how many times a day do I have to quote, a, uh, I, I have a quote from Shakespeare that he never said, which is, "'Tis better to bruise than to stroke." Okay? <laughs> but, but and, and Patients can process that, but of course I made that up. It's part of the baloney that I, I think we have to recognize that, that addresses your concern. If, if a patient has an effect or even a fear of something that keeps them off treatment, that's where the downside is amplified. So your, your work is very important. And I'd like to see us look perhaps at ways that we could use comparable scales or translational methods to identify how to use that for the drug studies.
0: Um, as primary care uh, outpatient, uh, the issue that I deal
2: with the most probably is the balance between the cost um, of uh, the NOACs, which are clearly probably better medication than, mm-hmm. you know, for, for most patients, and fact that many drug plans still do not cover, um, and you're, you're left with the devil's choice of, uh, uh, of a less expensive uh, medication that they can't afford uh, versus a better medication that they can't. You couldn't be more right. Um, it's exactly the problem. They Market price of NOAAX is $8 a day for a drug that most patients will take for the rest of their lives. That is a huge burden. We do need to consider that the true costs of care involve more than the price of the pill. You have to consider the acute and convalescent care, that patients who are stroke victims, you have to consider all the accoutrement that goes on with warfarin, the blood tests, the drug interactions, the frequent contacts with the health system and so on, that their insurance companies seem to have less trouble paying for than the preventive strategies. And you're absolutely right. Hopefully, the introduction of generics will have a favorable impact on pricing even on those. And many, as you know, of the major pharmaceutical manufacturers today, when they smell a generic coming, they make their own generic, okay? Change the name, call it something that's similar enough to be suggestive, and put it on the market as a reduced price to protect ownership of that market share. So there's a lot of sleaziness out there. Thank you very much for Thank you. I I love the way you shared the various agencies.
0: Could I uh, press for your wisdom? A little bit
2: on um, intracerebral hemorrhages. I think I think you probably were talking about de novo ones, but what about patients who have had a previous thromboembolic stroke, risk of bleeding into that months or years earlier? And what about the slightly steady elderly patient, where you always worry a fall mm-hmm. might produce bleeding? Is there any evidence at all that the may still have that preference in those right. typical? Right, with- so, so first with regard to those with a prior ischemic stroke, uh, was like the rocket trial of Rivaroxa, over 50% of the patients enrolled had a history of ischemic stroke, okay? So, you know, it's 14,000 patients of them. You got some evidence, and in that subgroup, and in combined subgroup analyses, meta-analyses, uh, the NOAC certainly look better than warfarin, but we don't have no therapy, there's no placebo in any of these trials. So we don't have a full answer. How quickly to start an anticoagulant after an ischemic stroke? That's a question for your neurology colleagues. It's related to the, the location, the size, the confidence with which they assessed that it was cardioembolic rather than due to some other mechanism. And uh, you know, I always defer to neurology. When can we start? Sometimes they can say two days, and sometimes they can say a month. Uh, they have to make that judgment with you. Um, as regards the issue of subdural. You know, we have a Markov decision analysis that was done in the warfarin era, which I think is kind of compelling, and it showed that if a patient has a CHADS2 score of three or more, they would have to fall over 200 times in a year for warfarin not to be the better therapy when you look at functional outcomes because subdural[s] are different than intracranial hemorrhages. You can drain them. Nobody wants to have a subdural. But you, know, you stand them up and send them back. It's, it's not the same thing as a parenchymal brain hemorrhage, which literally destroys the brain. And again, it's different to have a brain hemorrhage when you're on nothing than it is to have it when you're on an anticoagulant. Okay? The, you know, the, the outcome of mortality rates. And, and again, you're right that uh, we don't have good data yet on how the various agents individually compare to one another with respect to prior hemorrhagic stroke um, because the number of patients in the trials was simply too small. Let's take one more question. Uh, Have the apps that are available to patients uh, for use with their cell phones identified low-dose AFib? Has that changed your clinic population and how are you managing them? By that, you mean identif- the patient has something that can record their EKG or a phone like the Apple Watch phone, yeah. and they say, oh, it's possible AFib, right? Yeah. yeah. So it, it certainly is bringing more people forward. And the more it gets back, the day that we reported the results of the uh, first trial, SPAF1, There was a press conference held in Bethesda at NIH, and the very first question that was asked by a reporter, wow doctors, you have found this treatment that can prevent stroke in AFib, how do we find the patients with AFib? And to this day, we don't know the best way to do it. What we know is that the longer and more continuously we monitor the patient, the more we're going to find. AFib is definitely, the more you seek, the more you find. We can identify patients who are at high risk based on the CHAD score. If you have people with high CHAD scores, you can pick out a population that has a 30% chance of having AFib within a year just by using an implanted monitor. But, you know, again, who wants a piece of gizmo implanted in them for, to find something that they don't even think they have? Okay, so this is a challenge. The watches will help. But the problem with some of them, the Apple Watch, the doctor doesn't get to redo, review the electrogram. The smartphone ones, they can send it to you, and you know, about half of them are too noisy to make a diagnosis, and others every now and then you find something. Okay? It does make you question the old tenet that, you know, when I write my next book, it's going to be entitled Symptoms Not to Worry About Chapter One, Palpitations.
0: Okay? <laughs> 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 I got Thank you very much.